you have to have a plan the worst time to think up a plan is when you need the plan yeah. you have to have the plan in force the whole group of us could have been killed absolutely yeah. and i would have been in a orange jumpsuit somewhere having my head chopped off i made sure that those guys weren't armed mm-hmm. i was the only one with a with a pistol section commander full corporal he was my my 2ic and he was a pain in the ass and he was from glasgow yeah and he was a he was a Glaswegian and he was punchy. He was a punchy Glaswegian, right? And he was a brilliant soldier. Welcome to the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graham Kildower, a podcast that dives into the depths of understanding communication in all walks of life. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Welcome along to another episode of the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graham Colgaard, and I'm joined over Zoom this week with Richard Pendry, an Associated Training and Risk Management Consultant who specialises in security, risk management, crisis management, business continuity management, counter-terrorism, security training. He's also an author, if he's got any time. He's an author of Dam- Damascus Redemption, and he was formerly in the uh, the famous Parachute Regiment. Richard, I don't know how long we've got to talk about communication, but how are you? Yeah, I'm good, Graham, and it's lovely to see you again. Um, I, I think it was, oh, 2019 that um, we actually, we met and yeah. uh, we did a training session on, uh, on on critical events and terrorism uh, awareness and things. Yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's good to see you too. It's good to see you too. I mean, there's we've got so much to pack in and obviously i don't know if we'll be able to even cover half of the stuff that you've done in your career and and talk about the communication aspect but i was really 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 keen to get you on the podcast to talk about some of your experiences and obviously through your lifetime and what you're doing now uh you know communication is so important in in all these aspects and i think it's great that we get that 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 sort of experience and lived experience from yourself uh Military background to start with then. How did you get into the military and what was that like for yourself getting into that environment? Well, uh, it was pretty straightforward for me, actually. Um, I Much to the frustration of my father. Now, my father was a, was a headmaster and he had uh, expectations of me going on to university and, you know, and doing all that sort of academic stuff. And I just, that's all I wanted to do was to join the army. That's all I wanted to do. And do you know what, Graham? It, it, it's come, it comes from the action man. You know, remember the action man doll? Yeah. You know, I would, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, I loved that. And, um, you know, making the FX models of the Lancasters and the Spitfires and all the rest of it. That, this was prior to all this, these Nintendos and everything. And I just, I just really, I just really liked that military thing. And I, I, I wanted to push myself. I wasn't frightened of uh, the physicality of it. So I thought, right, if I'm going to join the military, I may as well rip the arse right out of it and get, get in as, 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 as much as I can. So I joined the parachute regiment. I joined when I was 18, straight into the regiment, as a, uh, straight into the training, uh, the, the element, the yeah, depot para, which was down in all the shot. And I, I stayed there for seven years, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I did very well. I got to the Lanc- I, I was an acting sergeant at one time. Did very well on some of the courses that I did, and and I got promotion very easily. But then one day I woke up and I thought, Do you know what, this isn't for me. Um, and what what it was was that I started to question things. I became aware. Yeah. Um, if you if you mean, I, you know, I, my, my you know my <coughs> excuse me, I got a bit of a cough going on. I just became aware of what was going on around me. And I think I began to question things and I began to question the orders. Why, what's the, what's the rationale behind that? You know, mm-hmm. and I think it, it can be dangerous for us here because, you know, you, you, when they say jump, you need to jump. And if you don't jump, then there's a reason, you know, there's the reason that they, they're asking you to do that. And I just became a lot more aware of myself and, I'm not going to use the word intelligent. I just cognitive. It was just this cognitivity that I just became aware. And I thought, no, do you know what? If I start questioning things and and I got my, I got myself out. I went into business, um, um, hospitality, owned a a number of pubs and restaurants. And then in 2005, I sold the business that I had. I, I had a phone call from a friend of mine and said, do you know what? Do you want to come out to Iraq? And, um, 
I went, ah, oh, okay, sounds great. Money was brilliant. I went home. I said to my wife, who was, uh, she was running one of the other businesses that we had, and I said, look, I'm, I'm just twiddling my thumbs. I've sold the business. I want to go off to Iraq. And she said to me, do you know what? Off you go. You're having a midlife crisis. Crisis. I was in my mid-40s then. No problem. Midlife crisis. Go off, do what you need to do. Six months, come back. Yeah. Right. And that was back in 2005. And, and I loved it. I, I, it was the, 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 the camaraderie uh, with the security company, the private military company in, in Iraq was great. It was like going back into the military. It was exciting. It was plenty of money. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know, you had a lot of guys going over there and just getting their um, fi purely financial, paying off mm -hmm. their mortgage, go and get a Maserati or whatever they wanted to do with their, with their pop star wages. And, uh, but I wanted to do it as a career. And I did, although I left school with um, one GCSE, O-levels we used to call it back yeah. then, um, much, much to the frustration of my father, that's when I started uh, my first degree. And um, I did it in security and risk management because I knew that if I wanted to progress, you know, within the industry, within the security industry, that I had to have more than just empirical experience. I needed academic qualifications. So I, I did my first, uh, started my first degree when I was in Iraq, finished that when I came home. I had a bit of a gap between Iraq and then I went to Afghanistan. And I was in Afghanistan for six years, um, doing lots of different things. And I did my second degree while I was out in Afghan. Afghan. I did my master's in uh, uh, terrorism and political violence uh, from St. Andrews, uh, an amazing college, uh, amazing university. Jesus. So all in all, I did eight years of study of, you know, the, the academic side of what I do. I mean, a lot of people when they're having a midlife crisis buy a Harley Davidson or a or or a or a, or a yeah. flat top car or something like that. Yeah. So going to Iraq and then being involved in all that isn't something that I think is top of most people's list. But I'm interested to go back to you know that moment when you've you've left the school now. For a lot of people, that I've got no background in the military or anything like that. But from when you you watch the TV shows or you watch documentaries or read books or hear people speaking on podcasts, a lot of the time. The progression is from the the military into the in the army the normal into the parachute regiments and and they see the jump up so to go from an 18 year old boy effectively yeah. to go straight yeah. oh, into yeah. that top level you know because the, the parachute regiment is a very well-known and well-renowned regiment and not just the not just in britain but in the world so mm -hmm. what was the culture shock like for you when you you step up as an 18 year old into that environment uh it was six months Okay, you, you do your basic training six months and and it used to be years ago after the Second World War that you, you, you would have soldiers that would actually um, be a soldier and they would volunteer to go airborne and you know so they're already soldiers and stuff and you, you get that you, you do get that now but predominantly recruitment is from um, city street you right. know? And back then back in back in the 1980s when Britain had an army, of of uh, of no not not you know not just now there were there were there were there were uh, about a hundred people a hundred guys a hundred um, um, we had it was so big our platoon had to be split down into an alpha and a bravo and there's around about a hundred um, and um, out of that hundred I've got a picture ah here we are I'll take this picture down okay so out of our fifty. 50 approximately this was what was left i don't know can you see that these are the guys that were 14? left is that, we 14? Is, that, is that 14 people there or something to oh, yeah thanks. wow yeah that was you know that was we went straight to a, a, a number of guys were back squatted because they had physical injuries and yeah. stuff like that a lot of guys didn't like it and they couldn't hack it and they got out um now in this yeah so that that was at bryce norton i want to i want to point out I want to point out this guy. There's me on the end. Okay, yeah. there's me on the end. Right. And this yeah. guy uh, on the other side. Yeah. This fella. Yeah. Okay. Stephen Ellingsworth. Okay. Uh, my best mate going through depot. Shared a lot of bad times, a lot of cold times. We got each other through it. And back back in the 80s, 
we had three regular battalions and we had three volunteer battalions. We had 15 para, which was in Edinburgh and Glasgow, 10 para, 4 para, which were the TA, and then we had the three, which we have now was the three regular battalions, one, two, and three. And you, you, um, you could actually put your name in to join a particular battalion. And myself and Steve said, right, we want to go to two para. Okay. Brilliant, we're going to go to two para. Steve got his wish. I didn't. I went to one para and on the day that they actually moved to, to Edinburgh. Um, I had a great time in Edinburgh. Yeah. But Steve, this would have been, that would have been in March of 1981. Um, just over 12 months later, Steve was killed in action in the Falklands. Right. And Steve was actually um, put, he was recommended for the Victoria Cross at Goose Green. Uh, he got the Distinguished Conduct Medal, which was the next thing mm. down. But... And I've got a, a picture on uh, on uh, on my one of my social media uh, feeds. Uh, I think it's Twitter, because um, um, we just had the forty first anniversary of his death. Right. Um, Goose Green, twenty eighth of May, and uh, I went back to see his um, his grave, which is in the Aldershot Military right. c- uh, Cemetery. And yeah, very very moving. So by some twist of fate, Steve got his wish. I didn't. And um, yeah, bless him. He he died when he was 21, 20, 21. Wow. I mean, that, it's just when you when you look, take a step into that world and that environment for people who have never been involved in it, it's such a such a crazy place to be where you're in that situation where, especially during conflict times and things. And you know, this is a, a podcast about communication and things. And I wanted to sort yeah. of ask you about you know your early, you know, how you're communicated to and how you communicate with others in that environment. You know, when you're going in as a recruit, we've seen the videos, you see the movies and stuff like that, and you're spoken to in a way because the old cliches are trying to break you down to see your character to build you back up again. I mean, is that is that literally how it is when you've got superiors oh, yeah. and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, they smash you down. Yeah, and I was, I, I was a military instructor as well, you know, training recruits and what they do, you know, what, what we have to do, we have to completely break that thing down and then build you back up again. And it's right, and, and you know, <coughs> excuse me, you, you are, you... You are there to obey orders. Yeah. Because if somebody tells you to get out of the trench, fix your bayonet, and go forward, you do it. Yeah. You know, and 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 it, they they tell you what to do, maybe how to do it, but they don't tell you why. It's just you do it, guys. You do it. Yeah. yeah and that's it. And that's that's the role of a soldier. So communication within the military on on the on the you know the um, the lower level, the section level, the platoon level is is. I tell you what to do and you do it yeah. you know it's only when you go further up with your um with your rank status or you go off to a special forces unit there's a lot more communication it's, and you know it's just an sf unit would if you want to do an action you would get people together and say right guys how are we going to do this mm. yeah um w- rather than in you know the the uh, the more uh you know the pressure regiment the, in, the other infantry regiment he says right guys this is what we're going to do yeah yeah and that's it and you you obviously climbed up through that the ranking system in the military you mentioned there whilst you were in the regiment and how different was that being a communicator from being the guy that receives the instruction to then being the person who dishes out the instruction well yeah that's a good question actually because um you know that is when i i first started to communicate i when you have people beneath you who you're in charge of who you're looking after and also that you have to train, mm-hmm. yeah, because you know you come out of your, of your six month basic training, and then your specialized training starts, and that is when I um, that is when I began to develop my communication skills, and um, yeah, I mean the course that I went on my junior NCOs course, um, which was um, in yeah when was that nineteen eighty four. I went out, I was a Lance Corporal, joined in 1980, Lance Corporal, went on my junior junior course, and I got a distinction on it. I came top of the course, and there was about 140 guys on that, and I was the number one. I've got, again, you know, oh, this, you know, like product placement. You know, these are the pictures. <laughs> that is, there, is that your certificate? I, yeah. I was, you know, I was, I was, wow. I was promoted by the regimental colonel because I had a distinction on my junior Brecon course. But that was the start of me training and the start of me communicating mm. um, but 
and I enjoyed it, and I was, and I'm, you know, I'm good at it. I mean, you did one of my courses. I wouldn't be yeah. sitting here now if if uh, you you didn't think I was any, you know, you <laughs> thought I was any good. No, um, I mean, I, yeah, no, I, I, I am, I'm no, I'm a bloody good trainer, you know. And when you when you're looking at that point of view, then when you've got a group of a group of men, and you know that the instruction that you're giving to them could be one day. A different the difference between life and death situations it, it needs to be done there can't be questioning and things like that do you look at when you're training and communicating with people when you're in the army are, are you communicating with people on the exact same way every single time or when you're getting to know these people and you're working with them every single day and you're living with them do you mm. communicate differently to different people because you know how you're going to get the best out of them in different different circumstances yeah um I mean, the thing is, it's all about adapting your management style. And one of the nicest guys, and, uh, and he, I was a section commander, full corporal, and he was my my two IC, and he was a pain in the ass. And he was from Glasgow. Yeah. Okay? And he was a, he was a Glaswegian, and he was punchy. He was a punchy Glaswegian, right? right? And he was a brilliant soldier, but he was a nightmare because he would question everything. And I'm like, guys, we just got to do this. You know, this is this is it. This is the plan. This is what we got to go forward. So you have to, again, and it's a management style where you can't have just one going forward. Now you just can't have one management style. You can't just be autocratic. This mm. guys, this is what we're going to do. Boom, off we go. Because although that might cut it at a low level in the military, when you start to apply that later on in your career. You know, um, and, 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 you know, I did my, my first degree was in security and risk management. Yeah. Then, you know, we look at the different management styles and we look at the different ways that we have to communicate with people because communication, you know, and this is what, one of the reasons I was glad to come on. I, communication is essential. Yeah. It is essential in every form of life that we have, whether it's talking to your kids, whether it's talking to your wife. Um, you know, talking to your dog even, you know, uh, and then through your career and, and, and things fail because of bad communication. Yeah. And when uh, it's interesting because obviously our management styles or our, our communication styles are often shaped by people that we've maybe encountered before. You maybe see somebody who, who speaks in a certain way to people and you look at that now. When, you, when you're in an environment like the army and when you're in the environment like what you were when you came in very, very early, very young, and you've just said that people above you are shouting instructions at you, they're breaking you down. How difficult is it then when you get into that position there to be yourself and have your own style rather than just going, well, the guy before me spoke to me like that right. because the guy before him spoke to him like that. So I think I'm just going to speak to the other people like that. Yeah, you get a, there is a lot of that, okay? There's a lot of... Yeah, obviously we've got a hierarchical structure and there's a lot of peer pressure. So for example, um, when you, um, um, when, when you, after your six months training and you leave the depot and you go and join your unit, you go and join your battalion, we, the, the military, the, the power term that we use, you were a crow. That was it. You didn't know anything. You, you know, your, your, your uniform was brand new and all the rest of it. So when you got to your actual unit, Nobody spoke to you for six months. They did, they treated you like a low life. Okay, the guys that you came up with, the you know the junior members of the platoon or, or the section, you deal with them. But every, all the senior toms, all the senior soldiers, just ignored you. You know, and and eventually after about six months, they they you know you did all dirty jobs, you carried the heavy weapons, and um, you know that's that you learn your apprenticeship and all the rest of it and if you spoke in the wrong way you 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 had that you know keep crow keep your mouth shut you don't know anything and 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 and, and, and fine you know that that is the way that it used to operate i can't comment about it now but that's the way you used to operate it however when i was a section commander uh, and um, i was out there and i had my my section i didn't treat them like that I, I, I wanted to involve them all. And I always remember we did a, a I had two, two crows um, uh, with me and we did a big exercise um, on Salisbury Plain. And we had to dig a trench. Infantry is all about digging trenches. Mm. And we, we dug this trench during the night and we covered it all and all the rest of it. And uh, after we did it, I said to my guys, right, you, you, you stand watch now, I'm gonna get my head down, we'll have a brew and all the rest of it. And um, 
it wasn't long after that I actually left the military. I'm one of those guys. I I was um, I went back to Arnhem uh, on a pilgrimage um, um, years about five six years after I met the uh, after I left the military. And one of those those junior soldiers um, that I encouraged and talked to and you know helped uh, when when he was in my section. He actually saw me in in uh, in Arnhem, and he came over, and he was a captain then. Right, so he transferred, and he was a captain, and he remembered. He said, "Well, re you really treated us fairly." And I, I think I, I treat people the way I wanted to be treated myself. Yeah. Just because there is a a system that is in place, and it's been there, and it's the dogmatism and all the rest of it, doesn't mean it's right. Mm. You know, the thing is, what we're doing is is we're, what we're actually looking at is 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 testing and adjusting and making it better. Yeah. And and um, you know, it, it's different. That was back in the eighties. Mm. You know, they could have got. They, they, we had a huge military then. Um, you know, based at Redford Barracks when I when I joined the battalion, yeah. doing ceremonial duties on <laughs> uh, on Edinburgh Castle. It was yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Did, so did you did you tour then? Did you say, were, did you were you involved in conflict environments as well when you were in the when you were in the well, army? The, the only the only thing I did then was Northern Ireland. Yeah. That's the only thing. Um, I left before. Kosovo, um, I left before then, but I made up for it when yeah. I went to Iraq and Afghanistan. But even you know, even back then, you're looking at the 1980s in Northern Ireland, which was you know to, for like, oh, game a, on as a yeah, yeah, <laughs> Operation Bannock, yeah, game on, yeah. So, I mean, you you go on a tour and you would lose you you lose a couple of guys on tour to uh, KIA, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it's interesting the, the focus when you're in that high pressure environment when you're when you've got a group of men. Who are well? Let's be honest. They've been trained as trained killers. Are, are in an environment that's high pressure. We hear hear some of these horrible stories of people who, you know, the mental health side of things is a is a big big element now for for every environment. But it, when you've got group, groups of blokes together, one of the biggest hard parts is is getting people to speak about it and things like that. So when you're in a conflict environment with that stress, where any time you leave the safety confines of the area that you're your barracks that you're in, where you know that you could be somebody could be killing you that day how hard is that to manage and how important was it or did you guys have that open communication as a group did you have that camaraderie where people could speak about whether they were scared or worried or uptight or or was it just not not spoken about back then back then no 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 man up get on with it um falklands 1982 and uh Guys are coming back from the Falklands after, you know, and, and when you, when you, when you, you know, when, when we look at um, Mount, Mount Longdon, for instance, mm. with three barrel Mount Longdon, it was hand to hand combat with entrenching tools and bayonets. You know, there, there were people being killed hand to hand combat, you know, and they were just, when they got back to the UK, those soldiers were just, they got off to Canberra or whatever, or whatever aircraft they came back on, and they were just left into City Street. And, you know, there were so many troops that we, you know, the PTSD, we, although it had been around and it had been acknowledged as being um, identified with, uh, with veterans of Vietnam and things like that, British military never did anything. Now, when, you know, when, when they were doing combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan, they would have a stop off in Cyprus oh, yeah. for X amount of days. And, and basically, it was just a big piss up and, uh, you know, all, all that sort of anxiety and that uh, and that thing was just released but no the, the the military has this huge mental health issues there are so many dysfunctional people dysfunctional ex-soldiers which um you know through no fault of their own were exposed to this. the brain can't cope with it and now they are dysfunctional and you know being an ex-soldier and i'm on my social media feeds Oh, every week I see somebody's committed suicide or they're looking for somebody and stuff like that. So it has a huge, the, the job of being in the military has a huge impact, can have a huge oh, impact on, on your mental health. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a scary thought to think about what, what safeguarding is or isn't being put in place for people who have gone through that. But I mean, like I say, it's impossible for anybody who's never been in that situation to actually try and put their feet in the shoes of somebody who's in a, you know, the, the environment. But the camaraderie then, when you're in these situations, when things aren't, when you're up against it, when things are hard, how important is it that you can lean on the people around you and have that, that camaraderie, a little bit of 
probably dark humour, I'd imagine, as well, when you're in these situations where you can be oh, yeah, 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 gallows humour. And I mean, the thing is, when, when you're talking about a military union, you, you, you eat, you, you know, you go to the toilet, you sleep together, you, you know, you do everything together. Mm. And, and you know, you know who are the guys that will, that, that, that will go over the top with you and won't let you down, and you know the other ones and all that. But, you know, it's this extremely tight unit. However, when, when, when we're talking about, you know, par, uh, private military company slash mercenary slash soldiers of fortune type people out in Iraq, we did that. We, we were exposed to daily. Um, we would go out of the gates and we didn't know if we were coming back. Yeah, we really didn't. Yeah, and, and although we still had a, uh, there was a unit, it was no way the bond of the actual, you know, power reg. You know, we, the, the ex-power reg guys like working with the Royal Marines because we had this, this same ethos, you know, we knew that what, you know, their capabilities, what they trained in and, and uh, you know, and, and love working with the Scots Guards, Scots Guards guys, Welsh Guards guys, mm. you know, there, there was a certain ethos, you know, but, um, you know, and then we had some, some other sort of, um, uh, I, I, it was a bit like the company I was working for. It was a bit like the French Foreign Legion. Yeah. In as much, it was so many different nationalities, you know. But uh, yeah, that. But but the thing is, going back to that with the private military companies, if you woke up in the, uh, one morning and you said, "Do you know what? Ram it. I'm not doing it anymore." You 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 no didn't way. have to do it. Yeah. If a soldier did it, oh, no. you get court martial for cowardice or whatever, and you go to military prison. Well, a private military contract, they could just say, nah, do you know what? I've had enough of this today. Get me home. Yeah. I, I want to fly out. And, and that was it. And they did. And, yeah. they, and I saw guys like that, that actually buckled under the pressure. Because yeah. you were out all the time. Out all the time. And, you know, the, the roadside bombs, in and out of Basra, in and out of Baghdad. It was, we lost a lot of people. I mean, it, it is interesting then, your journey there going, you mentioned your midlife crisis at that age. So you're saying yeah. you're, you're in your 40s and you're now yeah, doing 44, yeah. 44 and what you would probably, I mean, you're a fit guy. I, I, I can see you from your lifestyle, you've you kept yourself fit and healthy and things like that. And you'd have to be to be able to do that at 44. But was was the private military side of things and that's private security side, was that a young man's game or was it just such a mix of different people? I was the oldest guy. I, before I did it, I, I went off and did a, a close protection course, mm-hmm. and um, it was it was a course called the Phoenix course, and it was in Hereford, and it was run by ex um, SAS MI six people, mm-hmm. and um, so the, the, the I I actually paid uh, I can't remember how much it was a couple of grand, uh, maybe maybe three thousand mm-hmm. pound to go on this course because. The companies out in Iraq were actually uh, asking for this qualification. It was job. It was. <laughs> it was. It was. At the end of the day, when when I look back on it, it was money and old rope for the the oh, old right. boy the old boy network, you know. So a lot of the ex Hereford gang, uh, they they were the top directors in some of the security companies, and so they were saying, right, if you want a job with my company, you need you need to go and do this course oh and by the way my mate runs the course and so <laughs> anyway but no i mean uh, the, 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 what they said was that um there's a gold rush there's a gold rush out in iraq and it was an yeah. afghan and they they were selling the shovels so yeah. i i happily went off i got my first i got my three grand or whatever it was i spent on doing the course i got that within the first couple of weeks of working yeah. in iraq yeah, yeah easy you know yeah. easy um, but but yeah, I mean the thing is, um, I, 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 what was the question there? Sorry, well, just about you being being the, no, it's just about how the, the age. So you're you're one of the oldest, I'm assuming, at forty four. In that yeah, I was forty four. I remember the first day on the Monday morning, I was signing in, and I had to give my date of birth. And one of the instructors said, "Whoa, forty four! Wow, all right, granddad, I'm I'm forty four. My son is my son would be forty. My eldest boy will be forty this this uh, really? uh, this year in yeah. in September, and I'm like, whoa, do you yeah. know? And I was the granddad on the course then, you yeah. know. And I, so there was a lot of younger guys, but a lot of these younger guys were coming out in the military. And they might have been there for 10, 15 years, and they didn't want to do it anymore. They they were given in their pensions because they knew that they could make more money over a couple of years um, out in Iraq. And it would, you know, yeah. so the, so these young soldiers were coming out mid twenties, thirties, 
and and yeah, they were making a mint. They really, really. And, and so did did just for to join up this this sort of unit that you're talking about this private security, this private army military thing. Yeah. Did you have to have ex-military background? Did you have to have been yeah, ex-military well, to be in yeah. there? Yeah, you, you, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I write. I don't know if you remember that. I, I in my book yeah. Damascus Redemption, I write about this one guy Thor, uh, and he was he he liked to he, he would he told people that he was ex-military. There was no way he was ex-military, yeah. right? And I got him down as doorman, I think, in in That's the story. Right. Yeah. And you know, and it, fair play. I mean, do you know what? I, 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 I mean, I train within the security industry now. Okay, and. I often find that, it, that the security industry is filled with ex-soldiers and ex-policemen. Right. Okay, and what we're trying to do is to get more, more you know, people people to leave school and say, right, I want to actually join the security industry as a career. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we want to get more of these people coming in because we send we tend to be a repository for ex-policemen ex-soldiers and all those guys come along and you know they're great but they they, they have a different mindset and, and stuff like that so we want to get people coming through that are that have you know no experience in in that, in that yeah. respect and we can teach them yeah. you know yeah. so um the, the but the main thing back in the day in iraq was that you could you you knew weapon systems you knew military tactics yeah. uh, and it and it, if you were you know if you were involved with a contact where the vehicle was blown up and you get you you then have an attack by the insurgents that you were able to um you know deploy military tactics and, and whatever so it was primarily for mil ex-military guys but we we did have some yeah some maverick type of Jeez. civilians out there who just wanted to do the shit and fair play to yeah 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 knock yourself out I, in that environment then you know, was there other people international? Other you mentioned about sort of was there other international soldiers that are coming in from different countries, different oh, yeah, nationalities, yeah. different I mean, cultures. We had loads of South Africans, Zimbabweans, uh, Americans, Canadians, French, Dutch. So even like the, 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 the communication on that front, then I mean, it's easy enough when you're 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 mentioned about your punchy Glaswegian do I see that you had to work with when you were in the Paris, yeah. but it's like you know even that's that's just you're that's a, that's a guy from Cardiff in Wales working with a guy from Glasgow in Scotland, but what's it like when you're suddenly honed in with all these different cultures and you're trying to communicate? But what you've got to know is that as you've already mentioned, if a roadside bomb goes off or you get attacked, you've got yeah. to suddenly be able to get clear instructions to get communicate with these guys very very quickly to be able to get you out of that situation in, in one piece. Yeah, but that's when it comes down to training, mm -hmm. because the thing is, what you do then you train. And I ended up as the, the regional security manager. And I had three, three things, three, three topics. My main three topics for training were medical training, mm. weapon training, and vehicles. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I used to spend, and I, I, I stressed, because the guys, I mean, I, I'm an, you know, I love guns. I love shooting things, right? <laughs> All soldiers love shooting, love guns. They love guns, yeah. So, I I I gave more time. I stressed more on vehicle. So you know, even changing a tire, mm. okay, changing a tire can can get you killed if you don't do it quick enough. Mm. Okay, if you bad guys chasing you, okay. Um. So I I used to stress, and I would I would say as the regional security manager, right? This is the main topic. And the main topics were the vehicles. You've got to make sure that your vehicles are ready to go. And if they break down, and if you get punctures, and if you get stuck in the sand, you can get you can get them out. The second thing was your medical training. Mm. And it, oh, the third thing were the weapons, because do you know what? If you've got to actually use your weapon, it means you've done something wrong. You've got yourself into a situation the risk is to you've got yourself into it into a situation where you shouldn't have been you know so your risk assessment your knowledge of the operational area you've let yourself down all right there's chances where wrong place wrong time however if you do your analysis properly okay if you do your analysis properly there are 
combat indicators, you're not going to go and do this thing today because you've had the intelligence. Or if you're going to do it, you're going to do it in a different way. So I, I was, ranges and weapons were the last. It was a vehicle was the number one, uh, medical training, and then and then the, then the weapons. And you train on what to do. So they were like a Formula One guys. Yeah. You know, they, they could change a tire on a B6 armored Land Cruiser uh, in like three, four minutes, I, you know? And that sort of shit would save your life. Yeah. How, how did you cope with the hierarchical system then in that sense? Because you've mentioned about the hierarchical system in the military where you're in the army and you know, like the person above you, the, the stripes are uniform, whatever it is. But if you've got a situation where you're in a private private army where everyone's coming and you've got people who have never, some people who have never served, you've got other people that have trained in the army, but there's a lot of egos, I'd imagine, in that situation because everyone will be walking through the door going, well, when I was in the army, I was better than the guys that are here, da 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 da, da. And then how do you, how, so how do you break that communication? Into, so when you're saying, well, we're in charge here, when I'm telling you, forget about the weapons, we're focusing on the vehicles, whereas you might have somebody who's South African or or another, a French, somebody French or somebody saying, what are we pissing about with vehicles when all I want yeah. to do is shoot people? So how do you break that down? How do you get through to that? And, and, and yeah, and there used to be a lot of that. You know, there used to be a lot of that. And and and, and within a team of say eight or ten guys, you might have very senior uh, NCOs, warrant officers. Mm -hmm. uh, you might even have office commissioned officers within that team. Okay. And you might have somebody who was a private soldier telling senior NCOs and commissioned officers what to do. Is it completely reversed? Just because, <clears throat> just because you. You, you wore a rank in the military didn't allow you to to cross deck over and take up a particular you know so that was it but, but 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 the thing is the good team leaders were able to communicate with their teams in a way because guys do you know what if we are not working as a team when we go out of those gates at Basra airport or whatever it is and there's bad guys on the other side of those hescos that are trying to kill us if we don't get this thing right well, none of us are coming back I mean, you're, you're in. You mentioned about that as well. Then you're you're in conflict war zones, Iraq and Afghanistan, but you're not there as part of the official military groups that are in there, the, the sort of British military or the the UN or whatever the the military groups that were over there. So, you know, we've heard about Camp Bastion, the the, the massive Camp Bastion size of it for uh, the, the the British and the American troops were living in and things like that. So, what was it like for you guys? You're not you're not in that bubble you're on your own are you were you in a completely separate yeah, yeah, camp and... absolutely i mean the thing is and and this is where i i did a number of different stuff um started off in in iraq but but when i got to afghanistan and i i worked for a number of different organ i worked for united nations i was doing counterinsurgency work in helmand doing the battle of marja and i I got quite used to working on my own. I would never, when I say on my own, I would never, with no other international people on my team. <clears throat> but what I would do is I would make sure I had local national people, Afghans around me, that knew exactly what was going on. So an example of that would be when I went to, um, I did a mission up to a place called. Um, uh, Asadabad, Asadabad, Asadabad was the capital of capital of Kuna. Mm. Kuna was a bad, bad, bad place. Do you remember? Um, do you, have you ever seen the film um, Iron Man with Ronnie Junior? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first Iron Man, he gets captured by the Taliban in Kuna province. All right. Okay, and and that's where they they that's, get all the bits and pieces. Yeah, he yeah. makes the first. What's his name? Stone or something like so, that. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. It's a bad, bad, bad place. So I'm up, I'm up there in my local clothes, right? I'm, I've got my cool on, which is the flat hat, and my and uh, um, I um, I didn't put a um, I didn't put my a local clothes, baggy clothes. I didn't put a, a, an armored vest, a, 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 a vest on underneath the body mm. because it might look like I've got a a suicide vest on. Okay. Oh, God, so and I've got a pistol stuck in my pants. <laughs> And we're um, we're out with my I'm out with my local guys, and we go in. I want a cup of tea, you know. I'm I'm just walking around, and um, we go in for a cup of tea and uh, some chai in this particular you know cafe, mm -hmm. 
and we're there and we're having a chat we're taking some photographs i've got a great photograph of it and one of my local guys says um mr richard we need to leave now mm. right now i didn't question it he knows he knows the, the the situation he knows the atmospherics he knows i just got up i never looked at anybody i looked at the floor we went out and um, when we were uh, when we were in the vehicle and we were going back i said yeah he said bad men bad men mm. bad men you didn't want to be there you, you know and i was like roger that fine yeah. so i made sure that when i was doing things like that i had people around me that would protect me if i didn't feel comfortable i wouldn't do it no I mean, I, no, because I'm the guy at the end of the day that decides if things are doable or not doable. I assess the risk, low, medium and high. And if it's high, you know, we've got to say to ourselves, right, are we really doing this today? Do we need, can we do it? Can we do it a different way? Can we leave it until tomorrow until we get more support, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not there to make reckless decisions and put people's lives at risk. Well, I think the reason we're probably able to have this conversation is because you're you're quite good at assessing risk in, yeah, in these yeah. I mean, that's my job, uh, you know, that's my job. in terms of like uh building trust with these people so you, just to just to clarify what you were saying there so you're traveling on your own to afghanistan which at the time we all know it's a conflict situation you're a westerner uh yeah. in that environment which at the time again westerners weren't seen as particularly popular people i'd imagine um and you're putting your life in the hands of people who had you ever met these people before or how the very first thing no so how do you what are you looking for when you're speaking to these guys that you can fully trust them so that in these situations they're not going to sell you down the river in that situation in the cafe or they're not going to put you in a position where your life's completely at danger through their act or, or actions or anything like that that's that's a really good question that yeah i mean you know you 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 get if I put my, my military uniform on and my, my, my bearing, I'll go back to the Pasha Regiment. And if you said to me, I'll be doing that, you said, crazy. No, I'm not going any, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere as, as, as a soldier without my section, mm -hmm. without my platoon around me, because that is my safety. Yeah. Okay. But the thing is, I had to think outside of the box. I had to do things. So judging somebody's um how can i say it um they how genuine they are mm -hmm. um you know having that um that sixth sense about them you know about you about uh, judge, you 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 can do it i i was good at doing it yeah. i was good at doing it and <clears throat> i would always go through myself actions on if things went wrong i made sure that those guys weren't armed mm -hmm. I was the only one with a with a pistol. Um, they weren't allowed to be armed. Mm. Um, I always had a plan B, an extraction plan. Mm. Um, and I, do you know you, you And this is what it comes down to as well: is commu communication. How do they communicate with you? You can tell Graham mm. if somebody is up to something. Yeah, there's an instinct. Yeah, you you can tell you can you can see by the and when we when we think about communication, fifty five percent of how we communicate is through um, uh, you know non verbal. It's it's body language. Yeah. It's how we how we yeah. And do you know what? You just you you even though I'm in a cafe drinking chai in Afghanistan, I'm still aware of what is going totally aware of what's going on around me yeah. and i know that my vehicle is downstairs and i know that my driver's in the vehicle mm. so if worst case scenario i get my pistol out i fire a few rounds and i'm out and i leave the other guys whatever it is whatever whatever plan i have but i i i, re I remember I re and i i remember this really really well i was in another situation where uh, the one day Again, I had my local clothes on and uh, I wanted a haircut, I wanted a shave. So I went into a barber shop mm. and this was in, this was in uh, uh, Jalalabad right. and my driver was, was there with me and uh, this guy came in. He didn't want a haircut. He saw me going in there mm. and he was just nosy. And I always remember I'm in the chair and I'm, I'm, I'm not happy with this guy. So I'm just like, I'm, I'm getting my pistol ready uh, under the, uh, you know, the, um, the barber shop, you know, the barber yeah. thing. 
And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to kick off now. And my driver, who was sitting behind me, yeah, the two guys were sitting behind me, the, the mirror was there. Mm. My driver got up and he stood between me and this other guy. Really? And I always remember that. Yeah. He didn't have to. No. Yeah, he didn't have to. But you know what? We, we, I'd, I'd, be, I'd worked with him for nine, ten months. We had, and you know, and we, we had a, I had a, a um, I had a, a, um, a situation where, you know, I, I trusted him. Well, I mean, I trusted him. What you know, you? you've got to trust people sometimes, you know. Of course, and it's finding that, and it's, it's interesting about reading body language, and, you know, you, you've got that. Body language is, is crucial. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is, it saved me on a number of occasions. It really, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's we, I interviewed Davey Martindale, a Scottish football manager, and I, uh, now he's about his his past, and he talks he talks all about his intuition and knowing, and the reason about his past was uh, he he started out as a youngster in organised crime, and then mm. he served time in prison, and uh, and you know, and now he's a, a football manager in the Scottish Premier League, and he kind of says that that intuition he's carried through all the way, where in organised crime and in prison, you really need to know who you can speak to in certain ways and who you can trust and who you, how you build rapports with people. Yeah. You speak to one guy and I'd imagine it'd be exactly if, if not worse in these scenarios, you give off one wrong signal in an environment like you were in and it could have catastrophic implications for you oh, and yeah, other people yeah, around you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the whole, the whole group of us could have been killed. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would have been in a, in a, in a, in a orange jumpsuit somewhere having my head chopped off. Goodness you me. know, sim simple as that. Yeah, you know, and 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 that is not blase talk, and that is fact. Yeah, when you're when you're talking about de-escalation, then when you're in a situation where you're thinking things are going to escalate here and things can't. I remember, I can't remember the name. He's on one of the SAS programs. He's one of the SAS guys, and he said, um, he said one of the scary things that scariest things he's had is uh, being chased by a bear. Uh, okay. And he said, yes. because uh, he said, with well, humans, he always felt like there's always a, there's always an option of being able to talk your way out of something with humans. Yeah. He said, but when you're dealing with a big grizzly bear, there's no way you can put your hands up and say, whoa, whoa, whoa let's let's talk about this or, or anything like that. It's going to yeah, it's yeah. going to it's yeah. going to want to rip your head off regardless. So yeah, when you're exactly. looking at de-escalation, then you're obviously going to be teaching this as well when you're doing your security training courses and things. Yeah, yeah, how, yeah. I mean, how can we look at if you're if you've got something to say to if you've got a de-escalation a situation that you feel is going to need to be de-escalated? What's the first things you should start looking for and start to think about doing, and then what's the next steps and processes of that? We've, well, we've got to look at the individual, okay? All right, why is that individual getting so worked up? Hmm. You know, what, what are the triggers for that individual, okay? Um, so it, it, what, what I teach, on, I actually teach members of parliament oh. on situational training, um, on, on how, to, how to read a situation and how to get themselves out. So if, 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 you're, if you have somebody coming to you, um, uh, and you're in a you're in a position of authority, and these people are coming to you, and um, you might be the you might be their last resort. Um, and and with the other thing as well, we we are talking about there is so much anxiety in our modern day society. Yeah. There is so much anger in modern day society. We see it we see it all the time, you know. We are now we we are in a more violent society than prior to lockdown, um, mm. you know. And that's just not me saying that's that's a fact, okay. Mm. And 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 I, I I think as well is that we have a lot more seriously um, disturbed men, men, mental illness people um, that 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 are just lashing out with violence. So the first thing I would say was not not to get yourself, not to get yourself into that position in the first place. Mm -hmm. Okay, you need to be able to the body language, the way that the, the demeanor of the person. Um, if you're in an office and you've invited somebody in, for example, and you're sitting somebody down, that person needs, and they are getting they're getting worked up. Yeah. That person needs to have that that the, the possible perpetrator needs to have. An escape room. If you put somebody in a room where they 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 can't see how to get out, that's bad. Yeah, yeah. It, it, because it's psychological. Yeah, they can't crap. see. They, so they're gonna they're gonna go to flight or fight, 
and, and we and we don't want that so the, the first thing when we look at is is the actual demeanor of the person how are they standing um are, you know are they being too vocal etc etc and then if we can't talk them down yeah if we can't talk them down and we can't get a colleague in to talk them down because that's a, that's another thing as well is that if i'm having an argument with you graham mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're at an impasse and you know whatever a really good uh, uh, ploy is for one of my colleagues to come in and say do you know what graham um you don't seem to be getting on with richard let, let, let's go over and in, in the corner and have a chat so you're diffusing it to, yeah. to, to that extent you know you you get it you, you you're calming it down and you get it off but at the end of the day you always have to have a plan b and which is getting out of dodge mm. as quickly and uh, whether it's a back door uh, an escape route because if it does kick off you don't want to be there no. because <clears throat> i mean the prevalence of um bladed weapons now you know yeah. shocking yeah. absolutely shocking yeah people carrying knives and things you just don't know it's yeah. easy to conceal yeah. things yeah, uh, yeah yeah we 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 met as you as you mentioned earlier on doing a sort of um, emergency response training course where the the main emphasis was on counterterrorism and you've also mentioned about yeah. your your qualification, your degree in counterterrorism that you did at St Andrews University. <coughs> I mean, it's a it's a very, very, very scary subject, but a fascinating one. Where just speaking to you for the time that we spent together on that training course, I mean, you you studied it for for a few years and things. How big a deal is communication when it comes to just counterterrorism as a whole, as a general side? I know if I'm talking about counterterrorism, it's a big old thing I'm looking at here, but. When yeah, you're talking about yeah. communication, just where where are the communication elements in counterterrorism? Right. Well, I mean, the big thing we've got in counterterrorism at the moment is Martin's Law. Okay. Okay. Which uh, is one of the outcomes with um, uh, one of the action points that's come out from the Manchester Arena bomb when it was unfortunately 22 fatalities, and Fegan Murray, um, whose son was killed. Uh, in the Manchester Arena Bombers, championed this new uh, uh, Martin's Law. And we get into the stage now where it's actually going to go through Parliament and it's going to be enacted. And the counter-terrorism, um, uh, if we think of a, a health and safety risk assessment, yeah. which we all have, 1974 Health and Safety Act, we have to have this. If we haven't got it, we're breaking the law. This new law is going to be sim- it's, it's similar but it's going to be, we're looking at the safety and security of people through the lens of counterterrorism. So there's a big change. Um, there's a big change uh, coming in, in the way the UK um, uh, venues, pubs, restaurants, yeah. they, uh, you know, stadia and stuff like that. Look at the pr- protecting people, um, protecting people from s- some security threats. But w- w- when we look at it, terrorism has been around for thousands of years okay Uh, and it's going to be around for a a lot more but it's it's not as prevalent as it has been um you know since 9 11. you know we the 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 security uh, services have got a lot better at um um, identifying possible terrorism acts and they, they go you know they're monitoring social media and stuff like that the challenge that we have are what we call the self-initiated the people in the in, in their bedrooms and things like that who have radicalized themselves mm. um, and then go off and do what we call you know we, we're trying to move away from the term lone wolf yeah. because it has some sort of you know uh, machismo about it you know it's it's not no but these individuals are very difficult to catch because because a secret is not a secret if more than one person knows about it and 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 that's why the majority vast majority of the the the, you know the planned terrorism um is interdicted and stopped before it actually gets there but again when we try to communicate so what what i'm you know i'm helping organizations now get ready for the sea change um with um the, the new counterterrorism law and how do we communicate it how do how do we how do we sell the benefits of well you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do the law you're gonna have to com- comply with the law anyway mm. but how how do we communicate 
how 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 do we let people know that there's a problem um that they have to do things it's, it's difficult so yeah. so for example um i was in a uh, i was helping a um a security company recently um who have a lot of nighttime venues and one of the big venues that they have is a nightclub i'm not going to mm -hmm. tell you what town it is it's in but it's a big nightclub on the south coast and it's like right okay so how do we communicate that there's a threat within this nightclub yeah. to four or five hundred drunken revelers. Yeah. If we've got to keep those people inside the venue because we have evacuations, mm -hmm. okay, getting out of the venue. But well, one of the the, the new uh, mitigation is and it, what we call an evacuation, keeping people inside a location because it's dangerous for them to go outside because of a threat of explosives or um, you know, multiple assailants with weapons, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you communicate that to five or 600 drunks? Yeah. Difficult, of course. it's very of course. difficult, but we, the thing is we have to come up with a, a methodology for doing that. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll let you know how I get up, <laughs> but it's, it's challenging, you it know, is. it's challenging, but again, it's, it's, it's been clear, it's been concise, it's been transparent. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big one for keeping, using the KISS principle, keep it simple for stupid yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's not overcomplicate things. And that's what you get with a lot of people. I, I'm, I, turn, I, I say to my students and stuff like that, is that I'd rather you, in writing an answer, give me a short paragraph filled with the information that I need, mm. rather than waffle on for two or three pages of uh, um, A4, you yeah. know, just waffling on. I just, and you know what, that shows me the confidence that you know the actual subject matter. Yeah, it's it, when you talk about giving instruction and delivering it, we've heard, we've heard a lot of people on the, the podcast already saying about the importance of just keeping it simple and getting straight to the point and direct. But yeah. it's interesting because throughout your career, you know, you've been in the environment, you've been in the environments where you're getting shot at, you're being, there's vehicles maybe being blown up, there's roadside bombs and things like that. But how do you, how do you get to somebody to know that when things are going wrong? Because obviously the risk assessment's there to try and prevent it as best as possible. But and, until you can absolutely 100% guarantee there's no reasonably foreseeable risk of a, a, an emergency happening in an, a venue or at an event, so yeah. when it is all going wrong, there's people screaming, there's smoke, there's there's blood, there's bodies, whatever it is, God forbid. The decisions that people make in that moment and how they communicate that instruction will have an impact on what happens next. So yeah. when, yeah. how, how, how do you, you know, for somebody in that situation, how do you try and get across to them that, that, that they get to make, first of all, you talk about fight, flight, freeze, not to freeze. And second of all, to, when they've decided on the course of action next to be taken, how to communicate that to the rest of the people that they're with and right. the, yeah. that, well, that, that situation. Yeah. Well, that's pretty straightforward, actually, and it comes down to training, okay? You have to have a plan. The worst time to think up a plan is when you need the plan. Yeah. You have to have the plan in force <clears throat> before these things. So when we look at um, contingency planning, okay? So if we look at... Um, critical event we've identified the critical event prior to that because it's on a risk register so okay. let's say for instance it's um it's 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 an attack uh, like in reading for instance we have one lone attacker going into the park in reading with a knife and within within the first minute i hear three three guys sitting down okay, okay. so <clears throat> So that that's how that's how quick and violent an attack will be within the first minute and a half. Um, you know the assailant will have killed many people, right? So what we have to have is a contingency plan to counter that. Okay, and and in most cases that would be an evacuation. So once you've identified that, it's how are we going to evacuate it? Where do we where, where are the the various routes? And you then, you then have to train, you have to do that. You can do a desktop and then you actually do a walkthrough exercise. Yeah. Um, and so the people who are there, the guys in the high vids, yellow vests, which we will all go to 
in case of an, of an emergency, they need to know what to do. And it's the good companies that will take time to have these contingency plans and train their people on what to do if the event happens. And it is the bad companies, mm -hmm. the ones that are just out there to make money, um, that will not train, and they will the ones that are going to let the industry down when these things happen. I mean, I have to, I have to admit, after our after the training that we had done, um, you know, you go back and you do go to a major event, and you do look as as you said, you've mentioned like the people in the high vis jackets. You're you're basically meaning the stewarding that's going to yeah. be there. And yeah, when you're more aware and you're more switched on and you do look around, and I mean this with the greatest respect because there's not I'm not tarring every single security steward or event steward with the same brush here, but you do go, if, in, in, in a lot of cases, you say, if, if things did happen, if there was an emergency, you're the first point of contact for a lot of people because people will Absolutely. know to run and straight you to you. You have to know the answers. Yeah. Okay? And, and when but these... I mean, if these guys are on £9.25 an hour or whatever the basic minimum wage is, do they really care? Well, I mean, that's and and in these situations, is it, the training for just even how to deal with communicating with members of the public who are panicked or people who are you know that's a difficult situation to do and it, and it's a hard one to simulate as well when you're when you're trying to train. So yeah. I, we you know there's a lot more talk about the visualization visualization process where you can say how would you feel in this situation and picture this is what's happening, what's going on around you, how are you doing that? But it, it really is a, a you know a, a subject where as you've already mentioned, communications and everything. But when there is an emergency going on, communication and open communication channels and, and clear communication is so, so important. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, when we, if we look at a, a terrorist event, if the terrorist decides he's going to attack you, okay, then uh, and he puts this plan in, into action, then there's very little you can do because people are going to get injured and people are mm -hmm. going to die. <laughs> but if we plan and if we trained we have a managed and effective response mm -hmm. and we can limit the amount of people who will, uh, you know, uh, we can lim limit the fatalities and limit the casualties. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're going to limit everybody, uh, stop everything. No. Yeah. Okay. But we can, we can have a, a more effective response. That's what we're after. Mm -hmm. a more effective response. It's a terrifying thought, but I mean, at least it's reassuring that people like, uh, this this uh, this mother and f uh, parents of this poor child that was killed are, are actually fighting for this to be legislation. Oh, and I Peter think Murray's done a, an, an incredible job. I was listening to um, a Commons committee, uh, which I think was last week, and you know, the, to get this bill as as a normal layperson to get this bill together um, and and get it to the stage it is now is absolutely incredible it's phenomenal yeah, yeah. you know to get this that you know it's, it's hard enough for politicians to do it mm -hmm. but fegan has done it you know I, she's got uh, people helping her of course. i acknowledge that but her single-mindedness and her dog you know her dogged uh, thing amazing yeah. and she got her, her obe last year and quite rightly so and you know she is a champion for for securing people at yeah, the end of the day awesome. she doesn't want people to lose their children and, and to go what she's had to go through. Of course, yeah. And good luck to her, and I, I hope that goes through. So we tend to finish the podcast with uh, one question. That's what's your three key fundamentals for communication? So three three key fundamentals. Yeah. I think you have to be you have to to be able to be a good communicator. Have to be have to be passionate about what you do. I mean, I'm passionate about keeping keeping people safe. Yeah, I think you can tell that. I can see that. Yeah. So I think it's it, it's it's um it's passion in what you do. Okay, mm -hmm. being a good communicator, getting that over, getting you know, there's nothing worse than being on a training course and you have somebody <laughs> talking in a monotone like this yeah. for like whatever I mean, and you're on a Zoom call, you're just not yeah yeah yeah. So it's passion. Okay, passion in the subject. I think it's transparency. You know, if you don't know, if you don't know, then tell people you don't know. Do you know what? Excellent question. I don't know that, but I'll find out and I'll get back yeah. to you. And the other thing is as well, and it's just carry on. You're gonna you're gonna make mistakes, mm -hmm. and learn from the mistakes. We all do them. Uh, just move forward, learn. Brilliant, Richard. That's been. 
I mean, we could we could sit here all night talking about that and going back. I mean, I don't know how old you are now, but I hope you don't have a, a second midlife crisis and end up in another <laughs> conflict <laughs> environment. But it's been it's been fascinating hearing that, and and thank you okay. so much for your insight on that. It's been very very. I'm sure many people listening to this will take a lot from that. Thank you. Right. So just to let people know, it's Richard C. Pendry. Um, it's a bit of a Richard E. Grant thing. Mm-hmm. There's another Richard Pendry out there. So if you're looking for me on social media, Richard C. for Charlie Pendry. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube channel. I'm pushing at the moment. Good. I've got a few good things coming out on the YouTube channel. The book is Damascus Redemption, which Graham has I've read. And he told me he loved it. Yeah. Can you put that in the show notes, yeah. Graham? Oh, this will be in the show notes, yeah. And I'm releasing another book at the end of the year, and uh, I will gladly come back on and 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 um, and, and plug that Graham yeah. closer to the time. How does that sound? Man? Absolutely fantastic, Richard. That, honestly, it's that, been a blast. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, so anytime well, you want me back on, Graham, you let me know. Cheers. Thanks. All the very best. Well done.